Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Ricky's back. President is back on the road. We're going to have dueling town hall meetings, one uh, with President Trump on some other network, and the main event on ABC News uh, town hall meeting with Joe Biden. Uh, it almost feels like uh, we're in a we're an actual campaign on a compressed time frame under the most unusual of circumstances. Uh, I, I guess we are. I mean, look, did anyone doubt that Trump would stay on the sidelines for long? And and once he's out there, he is really, really out there. And and John, uh, you know, it's it's a it, it, can we call it a Trump pivot? Is it a new man? Is he chastened? Is he humbled? Is he changed by the virus? Oh yeah, totally. Oh my God, yes. I mean, my lord, this is an entirely new Donald Trump. Just look at the guy. I mean, did you hear what he said about suburban women in in, in Johnstown, Pennsylvania? I mean, uh, Trevor, play the bite. Suburban women, they should like me more than anybody here tonight because I ended. The regulation that destroyed your neighborhood, I ended the regulation that brought crime to the suburbs, and you're going to live the American dream, and that's what you're going to do. So can I ask you to do me a favor? Suburban women, will you please like me? Remember? Please. Please. I saved your damn neighborhood, okay? You see, the only problem with that, Rick, now that I think about it as a... He's he's getting crushed among women of all kinds in these polls, uh, and suburban women in particular. Do you think he? Do you think maybe he knows that? I kind of think he knows it. I mean, why else do you go out and say, "Pretty please, will you vote for me, suburban women, housewives, please, housewives"? Um, I don't think any of his. I don't think it's working. I think it sounds a little desperate, but he did. But you were asking, did he make a pivot on the virus? So, um, you know, he was uh, he was flown by Marine One, as you remember, to Walter Reed. He received a treatment that only uh, up to ten people in the entire world have ever received outside of a clinical trial. Uh, he was surrounded by, as he has uh, described it, you know, an army of doctors, all the best doctors from all the best places, and he and he recovered. Seems to have recovered. Um, Got that crazy, uh, you know, steroid that we like to talk about. So he recovered. So you know, certainly, but but you know, he he told uh, Sean Hannity that that he actually felt that he was, uh, you know, he might have he might have lost it. He might he might have died. Uh, it was really bad. It was really bad. So he's recovered. So clearly, he's chastened on that. I mean, Trevor, do you have that bite where, you know, that first one, the one where he offers to kiss everybody? I went through it. Now they say I'm immune. I can feel, I feel so powerful. I'll walk into that audience. I'll walk in there. I'll kiss everyone in that audience. I'll kiss the guys and the beautiful women and um, everybody. I'll just give you a big fat kiss. I, I, I don't know, Rick. Um, maybe he doesn't really sound that chastened. We've said it before, John. He's not going to change. This is who he is. We're less than three weeks out from the final day of voting, uh, election day. A lot of votes are already cast, more than 10 million of them. Election day is already here, as you well, know. We're well into it, and, and, and what you see is what you get. And it, it, is, it is not going to change. Uh, it, it, this, is, this was another one of those weeks where 
you know, it could have been about the Supreme Court. Um, it could be about trying to take the fight back to, to Joe Biden. Um, and in fact, there's a lot of different there's a lot of different strings out there. Biden, I think, giving some ammunition to the campaign by by ducking around the question about whether he wants to, to pack the Supreme Court. But President Trump continues to get in his own messaging way in the all of the the wild ways that he does. And this is how he got here. Uh, and this it, it, three weeks out is is how he's going to close out this campaign. Biden seemed to be almost pleading, like as in in his own way, thinking that gosh. Or, or acknowledging that maybe he had thought that maybe, maybe he could emerge from this, uh, you know, slightly affected by going through this experience. But I think he knew better. Take a listen to Biden. You know, I wished, I prayed for his recovery when he got COVID. And I'd hoped at least he'd come out of it somewhat chastened. But what has he done? He's just doubled down on the misinformation he did before and making it worse. So many lives have been lost unnecessarily because this president cares more about the stock market than he does about, you know, well-being of seniors. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, Biden. Um, Biden has been able to kind of kind of sit back and watch this all go down. He's taken some heat, as you mentioned, for for not answering a, a really good question about where he stands on a fundamental issue regarding expanding the Supreme Court. Uh, I'm sure George and the town hall participants will uh, will ask some uh, important uh, and tough questions of of Joe Biden. Uh, but but Trump has managed to keep this campaign about himself, which his own people have acknowledged that that's what it's about. It's 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 not going to work well for them. Um, I I wanted to also play another clip, neither from not from Biden, not from Trump, but this one. I think got a lot of attention, certainly caught my eye. Uh, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, uh, who has not spoken to Donald Trump in about a year. It was, it was uh, almost exactly a year ago that, that, that she walked out uh, on a, a White House talk, uh, talks, uh, and, and they have literally not spoken. They saw each other, as you recall, at the State of the Union uh, earlier this year, but, uh, but they didn't exactly have a conversation, and that was more about you know, ripping up a speech. So Nancy Pelosi, um, you know, is was asked by Wolf Blitzer a question about the president seems like desperate to have some kind of a deal on an economic recovery package, another economic recovery package. He seems to want to spend a lot more money than than the Republicans in Congress want to spend. So why doesn't Pelosi, you know, take him up on it. And uh, this is what Wolf Blitzer on CNN uh, was asking Nancy Pelosi. And listen to how she responded. Even the members of your own caucus, Madam Speaker, uh, want to accept this deal. $1.8 trillion. Congressman Ro Khanna, for example. Let me just quote Ro Khanna, a man you know well. I assume you admire him. He's a Democrat. And he just said this. He said, people in need can't wait until February. $1.8 trillion is significant and more than twice the Obama stimulus. Make a deal. Put the ball in McConnell court. So what do you say to Ro Khanna? What I say to you is, I don't know why you're always an apologist. And many of your colleagues, apologists for the Republican position. Ro Khanna, that's nice. That isn't what we're going to do. And nobody's waiting till February. I want this very much now, because people need help now. I mean, that was the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, calling Wolf Blitzer 
of CNN, an apologist. You are always an apologist for the Republican position. So I want to be clear, Rick, I know Wolf Blitzer. I used to work with Wolf Blitzer. Wolf Blitzer is not an apologist for the Republican position. <laughs> um, but... And, and I think there was a there was a lot that came out there's a lot that came out in that answer too, John. Because what Rokana, who is a nice guy, he is nice. That's that's a fact check true. Uh, what Rokana is calling for is is to take a deal, to take a deal right now that would help a lot of people. Uh, the White House, as you said, is desperate for that deal. Uh, the deal's on the table. The reason, in in my view, and people I've talked to in the last day or so, that 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 Nancy Pelosi isn't taking the deal. They don't want to give a win to President Trump right now, uh, even which might cut against the optimism the Democrats feel. Because I think if you look at this, uh, it would put a Biden presidency in a much stronger position to have this in place, to have the economy in a better place uh, come January. Uh, I think there's nervousness about doing anything that gives President Trump a, a new victory, and I think I, I think that's some of the frustration that's bubbling up in Pelosi's caucus. And look, she's she take her at her word; she's holding out for a lot more money still. Uh, there, her bargaining position has been stronger throughout. She's gotten stronger, not weaker, uh, as it's gone on. And the president has been all over the map, even pulling his negotiators entirely last week. But uh, this, is, to me, shows that no one is really that confident in the hand they're playing. Yeah, and it's you know this this notion of like that I would like to just address when you're asking a pointed question, you are taking sides. It, it drives me crazy. It's what we hear from the Trump white house all the time. Every time I am asking a question, um, unless it's why are you so wonderful, Mr. President, you are accused of being the opposition party, the resistance, uh, you know, uh, uh, no different from the Democrats, part of the democratic party. And then to, to hear Democrats do the same thing, and, and Nancy Pelosi is not the first, she won't be the last to do this, um, it's just ridiculous. And we, we, we have a job to do. You're going to hear at the ABC town hall meeting with Joe Biden, you're going to some, hear some pointed questions, some follow-ups uh, from, from George Stephanopoulos. That doesn't mean that George is an apologist for Donald Trump. I think we can all agree, okay? So this is doing our jobs, and you know, our, our job is to challenge those in power and ask ask these questions. Uh, it's simple. It's simple. Um, another moment though, uh, Rick, and by the way, we're going to, we, we're, we are uh, going to be talking in the second half of the podcast with, um, <laughs> with an old friend, uh, uh, somebody who is a, um, a veteran of many, many intensely fought Republican contests, uh, who is now with the Lincoln Project, uh, uh, and about as uh, effective and sharp an antagonist uh, to Donald Trump and to Republicans currently running for re-election as anybody. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. Uh, but but uh, one more moment before we take a break was from the confirmation hearings. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, was asked a, uh, you know, seemed like a pretty simple question uh, by Dianne Feinstein. Take a listen to this. Does the Constitution give the President of the United States the authority to unilaterally delay a general election under any circumstances? Does federal law? Well, Senator, if that question ever came before me, I would need to hear arguments from the litigants and read briefs and consult with my law clerks and talk to my colleagues and go through the opinion writing process. So, you know, if, if I give off the cuff answers, then I would be basically a legal pundit 
And I don't think we want judges to be legal pundits. I think we want judges to approach cases thoughtfully and with an open mind. Um, so I, look, Rick, I mean, I'm not a constitutional scholar. I apparently occasionally play one on a podcast. Um, but I mean, that question did not sit very well. And I understand, look, is, is there any circumstance, uh, you know, where there was a massive terrorist attack, the, uh, you know, a cyber attack knocked out, you know, power in all 50 states or some kind of crazy situation where, uh, where, where there needed to be a, a delay to the election. I think that, you know, <laughs> I mean, is there some crazy hypothetical out there where Congress was d- destroyed? Or, I mean, I, I, it's, I, it's very clear the president does not have the power to unilaterally uh, uh, change the date of an election. That would be something that... And, and Senator Feinstein's question there. was about the Constitution. Yes. Yes. Senator Feinstein's question was about the Constitution, which there's nothing there. And she's a constitutional scholar. She knows that. You know, there's something about these hearings, John, and I know you and I have been, been talking about this because we've covered a lot of these. They have become increasingly uh, charade-like. I mean, there, there is no sense of anything in that room um, affecting in any way, shape, or form any vote of a United States senator. It just does It's not happening. And to the extent that they matter, it matters for the politics outside the room. And we're 20 days out for an election. But to my mind, that was just such caution by a, uh, by a judge and a very, very smart and accomplished woman who's been heavily, heavily coached by, uh, through the murder board process at the White House. Don't say anything controversial. Don't say anything controversial. And, and she's thinking, all I can do is get myself in trouble or I have a seat on the Supreme Court. So to not even answer that is just, it's sort of mind-blowing uh, if you take a step back to say that uh, someone who's about to be, in all likelihood, on the Supreme Court wouldn't just answer uh, the, the most basic question about what is or isn't in the Constitution. I mean, the, the, these Supreme Court hearings might be a new low in terms of the, the, the lack of meaning um, because in this case, you literally started the hearings off knowing where everybody is going to vote. Uh, I mean, there was very little drama in either the Gorsuch or the Kavanaugh hearing. So Kavanaugh got some drama as it went along. Um, but, but as those things kicked off, you, you kind of knew where the battle lines were, were drawn. But there were, you know, there were a couple people that crossed party lines. There were, you know, I mean, Sotomayor and Kagan. You had people like Lindsey Graham voting uh, 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 to confirm. Uh, and you didn't know that at the outset. So, that, that, you know, but this one, you, everybody's position was known before she was sworn in. Now, that said, I don't see the president trying to change the date of the election. I don't believe he has the power to do so. I don't believe that uh, anybody truly believes he has the power to do so, including Amy Coney Barrett. Um, and this gets to the related question, um, which is, you know, is, is, is the president going to accept the results if he loses? And you know my position on this. I have thought while the president occasionally likes to play a, uh, a, a dictator on television that he is not one. And uh, I, I just want to mention one other thing, which is this, uh, an opinion piece uh, the, uh, from earlier this week by Ross Douthat uh, saying that uh, there will be no Trump coup. And I think that, I think that uh, Ross makes uh, some good points about this, um, you know, that uh, th- this is just simply not who Donald Trump is. And he says, let me just read a couple of lines from this. 
There, uh, he lacks the popularity and political skill unlike most of the global strong men are supposed to be his peers. He lacks power over the media. Outside of Fox primetime, he faces an unremittingly hostile press whose major outlets have thrived throughout his presidency. He is plainly despised by his own military leadership. And notwithstanding the courtship of Mark Zuckerberg, Silicon Valley is more likely to censor than to support him in a constitutional crisis. His own Supreme Court appointees have already ruled against him. His attempt to turn voter fraud hype into litigation have been repeatedly defeated in the courts. He has been constantly at war with his own CIA and FBI. There is no mass movement behind him. The threat of far-right violence is certainly real, but America's streets belong to the anti-Trump left. So if you judge an authoritarian by institutional influence, Trump falls absurdly short. And the same goes for his power grabs. So, look, that's a harsh assessment by a conservative columnist on the pages of the New York Times. Uh, but the essential point is I don't think that it is his inclination to do such a thing. And even if it were, he doesn't really have the power to stand athwart and say, I'm not going to accept the results of an election. It's kind of crazy that we're even having the conversation 20 days out, but I... I it is I, crazy that we're having the conversation. But I, but I, yeah. I side with you on this on this question, John, and you've, you've covered the president for a long time, and he has done enough to, to make the question a legitimate one. He's raised it himself uh, in, in, in answering or not answering uh, direct questions on, on the topic. But, you know, I, I think ultimately a lot of it is going to come down to how how wide a, a victory we're talking about here for either candidate. Uh, I think if if it's a landslide, I, I don't, I have 100% with you. I think if, you know, if we're, we're talking though about extended fights through the courts, um, that's when things will get a lot trickier and dicier uh, moving forward. Uh, we'll, we'll see what 20 days brings. We will. Uh, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be talking to uh, Stuart Stevens. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by my old friend, Stuart Stevens, a veteran of many, many Republican wars and now an advisor to the Lincoln Project. Stuart, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for uh, asking me to the party. So uh, I, I, I've got to I want to come right out and, and ask you, I'm sure this was just a devastating hit to you. And I don't know how you're going to recover this, but uh, but but Sean Spicer uh, went on uh, went on Twitter the other day and announced that any Republican uh, who went and worked or supported in any way Joe Biden or any Democrat uh, in this election will never again uh, work in Republican politics. Are, are you okay? Are you, you you well. I, I see my future more in the dancing field, so it really doesn't. <laughs> um, it, it, it doesn't worry me. I, I, Sean is a role model of mine, and he seems to succeed. And I saw where his book was on the bestseller list of dancers' bios. So um, yeah, the number number one new release of of dancer biographies uh, on Amazon. I mean, let's just be honest, guys. <laughs> Do we think that any of us are ever going to reach that level? I think not. No, 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 never. I, I, never. I, I bow down in admiration and um, hope to uh, follow in his slippers. So, um, so on that note, um, let me. You know, I, I first of all, um, uh, I mean, you, you you guys have Lincoln Project, and you're an advisor to the Lincoln Project. Uh, have have broken through in a way, and it seems like, um, you know. Maybe your biggest success has been getting under the president's skin. Um, uh, he, he, you know, the 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 buys on Fox News, 
uh, the you know the, the way he's lashed out at you. How wh- why why has that been important? Why have why uh, has at least a chunk of what you've been doing been so targeted directly at pissing off the president? Well, listen, um, you know, I haven't worked in five of these presidential things. Um, disruption in any campaign is uh, increases dysfunction. Um, and this has never been a particularly highly functioning campaign to begin with. Um, so I think uh, our efforts to disrupt kind of command and control um, were important and successful. Clearly, when the president of the United States, the one thing every campaign has the exact same amount of is time. And when the president of the United States takes any time to attack the Lincoln Project, it's a good day for the Biden campaign. I mean, it, we just laugh. I mean, we're political consultants. None of us would vote for ourselves. Are you crazy? I mean, we're gonna, like, you know, um, we're not running. So I think it's useful in that sense. Um, and it creates internal tensions in that campaign. Um, Donald Trump is a, a childlike attention span and so easily to divert. Um, but I think we also went out there early on and showed people that it was okay to really punch Donald Trump. And I, I think that uh, the, the Lincoln Project, and this was before I was involved, hit him very hard and he responded. Um, and I think that it, in some ways, gave permission to others uh, to hit him equally hard. Stuart, when you when you're thinking about these, I'm impressed by how quickly you're turning things around, and a lot of the a lot of them are very clever as well, and you, you can play off of things in, with with enormous speed. What are you thinking about? What's the conversation like when you're saying, okay, well, he, he just said or did something that we can turn around and put some money behind real fast? Um, actually, I have to say this is the best working experience of my life. Um, it is a great um, liberating factor not to have a client. Um, because, you know, in a campaign, if you make a spot and you call your opponent a liar, the candidate pretty much has to agree that the the opponent's a liar. Because if, you know, one of you guys go out and ask the candidates, okay, you're running an ad that says your opponent's a liar, do you agree? Got to say yes, really. Or otherwise, you know, you look like you're not in control of your own campaign. We don't have to worry about that. Um, If we go too far, no one's going to blame the Biden campaign. Um, we don't have any committees. We don't have any focus groups. Uh, we get up in the morning, we talk about what we're going to make and then we make it. Um, and, uh, that's given us an ability to move fast, um, low friction, high speed. Um, you know, we have different categories of ads, the way we think of them. Uh, we have those that are intended to get inside the president's head, the president's campaign's head. We have ads that are targeted at the Senate races. We have ads that uh, we would call anthem ads that are sort of big ads that speak to the larger issues in the campaign that help uh, hopefully shape a narrative. Um, And we have some ads um, that we do uh, just to go viral with the hope they'll go viral. Um, And they all have different purposes. Usually they have different um, turnaround times. There's a whole rapid response uh, group of younger editors that are turning around stuff very quickly. Um, So, you know, it turns out if you let the lunatics run the asylum, we can kind of have some fun and 
and, and, and do things quickly. And Stuart, your, your work with the Lincoln Project came shortly after you published a, a book, you know, kind of a unique style of tell-all. Uh, it, it was titled, It Was All a Lie, and, and, and you document your decades of, of work in, uh, in Republican politics that basically presents Trump not as some outlier, but as almost the, the logical right. conclusion of the, the kind of things that have been going on in terms of uh, racial grievances and, and stoking controversy that you worked on all the way through the Mitt Romney campaign. How much of, how much of this, how much of the Lincoln Project is Republican consultants doing penance for their past work or saying after all this time that, you know what, I, I just don't believe in what the party has become? And how much of it is about Donald Trump as uh, as, as uniquely deserving of, uh, of the target of your dollars? Look, I, I couldn't speak for anybody else. I, I think the answer to that would be different for each individual involved in the campaign. Um, I think probably John Weaver and I have expressed the most um, remorse, but that may just speak to a kind of nature that John and I have, a sort of self-reflective nature. Um, I think everybody feels differently about it. Um, it's not something we ever talk about um, because we're just focused on a task at hand. Um, and I think probably how everybody feels about it will be different on whether or not we're successful and whether or not we're successful in a longer run um, in, in helping beat back, uh, let's call it Trumpism. You know, for me, uh, writing it was all alive. It was just a very personal Book. I mean, I, I found myself down this path because I asked, like, how did Donald Trump happen? How did this party that I thought was something else embrace Donald Trump? And in that way, kind of your high school English teacher told you, you can't really, you don't really understand something unless you can write it. I really began it not as a book project, but as a personal almost sort of diary. Um, and it gave me an excuse to go back and do a lot of research on the party. Um, and a lot of that research informed me in ways I, I thought I knew, but I didn't know. Um, so for me, it was just, it was very personal. I, I can't speak for anybody else. You know, I left the firm that I started in the early nineties last spring, because I just couldn't keep working for Republican candidates, at least on the federal level. Um, but, you know, I never argue. People always ask, well, have you lost a lot of friends and stuff like this? You know, I really haven't because I, I never really picked friends by politics. And I never argue about politics ever with anybody. You know, a related, a related question to this is I, I, I've spoken to a lot of people who have worked with you on, on previous campaigns who share your view for the most part of Donald Trump um, but, uh, but aren't ready to... to to torch the Republican Party and who wonder why the Lincoln Project has not focused its firepower solely on Donald Trump, but has also gotten involved and gone after people like Joni Ernst and Susan Collins and Cory Gardner. Yeah. Um, why, why, you know, because uh, as you know, there are many, many Republicans, some quiet, some not so quiet, who... Uh, are horrified by what they have seen Donald Trump do and do to the party, but are you know, w w you know, they'll go in and they'll vote for Joe Biden, um, but they would like to have a re you know Republican Senate to uh, you know to be a, to be a check on Biden and to be a a, a way to, to 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 rebuild the party post Trump. Uh, wh why did you decide, and why was it important to 
in, in your mind, to, to go after those uh, Republican candidates down ballot? Yeah, what do you do with uh, – how do you not uh, try to purge a party of people who say nothing when the president of the United States says he didn't rape a journalist because he wasn't my type? What do you do about people that, that really are quiet when the president of the United States is uh, refusing and the vice president refusing to accept uh, the results of an election? Um, that's a deep sickness. Cory Gardner yesterday in a debate was asked, do you think uh, Donald Trump, I forget the exact question, but basically is a moral and good person? And he said, yes. So, okay, that's a fair opinion. Um, but you're a Trumpist. And it's like, to me, this is just very clear cut. Trump is like segregation. I grew up in the South. I knew a lot of Mississippi in the 60s, 70s. I knew a lot of people, very nice people. They wouldn't have said, uh, uh, used a slur to describe an African-American in a million years. Um, they were kind people, but they were segregationists. So uh, I, I see Trump that same way. Trump is a moral test. And you can't negotiate uh, with evil. We always said that as Republicans. We said that we accuse Democrats of wanting you know, situational ethics. That they're the ones who are going to negotiate with terrorists. Um, and basically, you know, we have a man who, is, uh, for all reasons, all functional purposes, is attempting to destroy the pillars of American democracy. And the Republican Party is negotiating with them, trying to see what they can get out of it. And I think that's shameful. Um, and what I don't get is, you know, most politicians have pretty big egos. We all know that, which is fine. That doesn't bother me. So do great athletes. God knows great writers do, great musicians. But why don't they see how they're going to be remembered, these Republicans? And I'm not talking about in 20 years. I'm talking about in a year or two. Maybe, maybe, maybe six months. Three months from now. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I go back to George Wallace, you know, George Wallace, he did some good stuff as governor. He passed free textbooks, at least for white students. But nobody's remembered as the free textbook George Wallace guy. You were the George Wallace guy. So what, what, what happens to the party after this is all over? Well, I, I think I know exactly what happens to the party. I mean, assuming, I mean, assuming, that the, 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 I mean, assuming this, is, this is a really devastating loss, and, and who knows, right? But... I mean, they lose the Senate. They lose some seats in the House. They've lost the presidency. Um, what 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 happens? Who leads the party? Where does it go? I think I know exactly what happens to the Republican Party. I just don't know how long it'll take. What's going to happen to the National Republican Party? What happened to the Republican Party in California? It went from being the beating heart of the Republican Party, the Electoral Citadel, to third. And there's really not any major public policy decisions in California that are made that have anything to do with it. The Republican Party. So America becomes a one-party state, essentially? Uh, so America becomes a one-party... I, I think, you know, I, the way I look at it, I think there's really three parties now. There's two parties inside the Democratic Party. Call it the Biden wing, call it the Sanders wing. Um, and then there's the Republican Party. So look, of Americans 15 years old and under, the majority are non-white. So I'm thinking the odds are really good they're going to turn 18 and still be non-white. And that's a death sentence for the Republican Party, a death sentence. Um, and that's what happened in California. So it'll hang on and eventually it'll change. I mean, I think we're in for a period of center left government. And eventually that'll go too far. And some uh, morally coherent uh, form of center left, center right 
governance will emerge. But right now, nobody can tell you what a conservative is in America with any credibility. Not in a million years. I mean, what is it? The deficit? Are you kidding me? Strong on Russia? Are you kidding me? Uh, we used to be very pro-legal immigration. I mean, now, right now, we can't even leave the country. We've ended that little problem. Um, it's extraordinary. It's a complete moral collapse of a party. There's nothing there. We have a Supreme Court justice who was asked, would you support peaceful transition of power? And she said that was a political issue and she couldn't answer it. What made it a political issue was the president of the United States saying that he wouldn't accept it possibly. I mean, these are extraordinary moments. Um, and I think what's happening to the Republican Party is a complete collapse. What, what, what happens to those figures who were portraying themselves and seen by many as the future of the kind of conservative Republican Party? And, I, and I'll just pick out two because they both were as harshly critical of Donald Trump as anybody, as harshly critical as the Lincoln Project in your, in your, in your most brutal ads. Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. You know, these are two guys that have great futures behind them. They're, they're completely compromised. They're not serious people. They've proven to be, you know, smaller than the moment. Um, they're, they're just, they're little men who uh, have big jobs who failed. They were confronted with a big moment and they failed. It's not interesting or unique or novel. It happens all the time. They had their moment and they ran. They ran from the field of battle. They're cowards. And that's how they'll be remembered. And they're, they're inconsequential. I think when you look at the people who are running in 2014, you look at Josh Hawley, Nikki Haley. I mean, these are, are people who are complete frauds. I mean, if Josh Hawley went to Stanford, taught at St. Paul's in London, I think founded in the 1400s. He went to Yale Law School, wrote a very good little biography of Teddy Roosevelt when he was 28, published by Yale University Press, and he's running against the elites? Like, really, Josh? Really? It's just a total phony. Same with Nikki Haley. I mean, she knew what Donald Trump is. She tried to bargain. It doesn't work. So um, last question for you, and, and I hope we can continue this conversation, but look, look, look ahead for the next uh, 20 days. What, 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 what role does the Lincoln Project play? Where, what do you target? What, in, what impact do you think you um, will be able to have in this last stretch? I know what we're, we're, what we're trying to do. We're very focused. And, you know, there's a whole Lincoln uh, Project political operation here that's run by Mike Madrid. Um, the ads get the attention because, you know, you can look in an ad. Um, but that, that's happening. Um, we're very focused on uh, Florida, very focused on Pennsylvania, very focused on Arizona. Um, and uh, we think all three look good now. Um, and focused on these Senate races. Uh, there's, a, there's a closing argument here that we are trying to participate in, which is basically a right track, wrong track argument. I mean, I, I thought the vice president of the debate was the most extraordinary thing I've ever seen in politics, where you have Mike Pence defending uh, a, a right track of 19%. I mean, it, it's utter madness. So basically... So it's, more, so it's mourning in America. Yeah, they think that the country's going in the right direction. If you agree with them, you ought to vote for them. It's really straight up that simple. 
Um, and I, I think that uh, all the all the king's men and all the king's horses can't make it about anything else. Um, look, at, you know, I wrote a pretty pessimistic book about the Republican Party a year ago. As it turns out, I was wildly optimistic. I was just way too uh, uh, hopeful about the Republican Party. I mean, if I had said to you a year ago, look, it's going to be uh, October 14th. Uh, more Americans are going to die died from a disease in the last five months than has ever happened in the last hundred years. It's more people going to be out of work this October than any October in the history of the country. Um, and by the way, you can't leave the country. You can't drive to Canada. The only Western democracy you can go to uh, is Serbia. You can't go to Mexico. Mexicans don't want it. You would have said I was crazy. Well, that's the world we live in. And a lot of times we get sort of focused on the, the lunacy of Donald Trump. But if Donald Trump was just some boring Republican, he'd be in terrible trouble or she'd be in terrible trouble. The economy's in shambles, people are dying, and we're trapped in our own country. It's, it's extraordinary. And, and, and how bad are the losses going to be for, for Republicans? Does Lindsey Graham lose? You know, are, are, there, are there surprises? I mean, we, we kind of see where the, you know, we know the, the, the races that have been most hotly contested here, but are you going to see some that are like not even on the radar go down? How, 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 what, what does it look like on November 3rd? You know, the honest answer is we don't know. Um, I'm a Harrison donor. Uh, I, 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 I think a lot of people are based on his uh, fundraising numbers. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. I, I think the idea, I mean, Lindsey Graham to me represents everything that's wrong with politics. To see a grown man on television crying and begging for money after he's been in politics his whole life is one of the most disgusting sights imaginable. I just can't believe the people of South Carolina want a man who goes on television and cries and begs for money to represent them. I mean, any sense of dignity or self-respect is just out the window. I don't know. I mean, is this going to be 1964? It could be. I mean, Mike Espy could win in Mississippi, my home state. Um, I'm also an Espy donor. It could happen. Um, I think Republicans are going to lose the Senate. It's just a question of how badly they're going to lose. I think that they've completely misplayed politically the Supreme Court uh, moment. I think what they should have said is what we said in 2016. We actually believed we weren't lying. Um, and uh, here we're going to nominate this person. And if you would like this uh, woman on the Supreme Court, vote for Donald Trump and vote for Senate candidates. And I would have put her on the ticket. She's a lot more attractive than Mike Pence. Make, make, her, make her a figure if you want her. Um, instead... You know, at a time when people are, are record bankruptcies, record uh, small business closes, people are getting evicted. The United States Senate is uh, just focused on getting a conservative judge. I don't think most Americans agree with this. All right. Stuart Stevens, uh, thank you very much for joining us in Powerhouse Politics. Thanks, guys. Uh, for Rick Klein and the entire Powerhouse Politics team, Trevor Hastings, Avery Miller, thank you for listening. We will be back next week.